All right, can you guys can you guys hear me? I know you can actually. Thank you. Let's let's get started. My wife Ann would stop talking back there. All right. Let's let's pray and I'm I'm guessing some more people will trickle in. But um let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time now and Lord, we thank you for church. We thank you that we can gather. We thank you that we can gather with like-minded brothers and sisters. Lord, we thank you that we can sing and actually have something to sing about. We can pray and have someone to pray to. Lord, we have an infinite, lovely, wonderful God who loves us and has shed his own blood for us. Lord, the fact that you would extend yourself to us, the fact that, that you would make the way available for us to know you, and then you would communicate to us, show us the way, Lord, that you would send your Holy Spirit to, to confirm to us the truths that are written in the scriptures. Lord, thank you. It's, a, it's incredible. And that you would give us a path to follow, Lord, that you would show us how to live and not just leave us stranded without any instruction. Lord, we do thank you. And I pray that you would bless our time now as we study, continue this study of the subject of ethics. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's open it up and just talk about maybe some things that you have um, learned or appreciated from the past two weeks. Have you guys all been here the past two weeks? Brett has. He taught the past two weeks. Um, any, any just, again, not to not to put you on the spot, but just something that you've kind of clung to from the past two weeks. Yeah. So, so isn't that wonderful? Yeah. So that really helps with unity, doesn't it? And with appreciating one another. And yeah, Lisa. So there's specific direction. Okay. Yeah. Amen. He's left us with clear instruction. Any anybody else? Yeah. God uses all of this 
Amen. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's complicated. Yeah, Kathy. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I thought, so I was here the week before last. I was not here last week, but I did listen to the Sunday School online. And just the idea of these two triangles, that's, that's helpful. You know, you have the theology triangle, and, and then you have the second, this ethics triangle, and, and these areas are pushing on themselves. And, and so, you know, and especially as Brett, toward the end of the Sunday School, began talking about masks. You know, where, how, do you, how does this line up in your view of masks? It's helpful to think that way, and it's helpful with regard to just being patient with one another. And um, so, so we are, again, there's, this theology triangle, and I don't have the fancy graphics, so that focuses on what is true. And you have systematic theology, exegetical theology, and biblical theology. And these are different ways of understanding Scripture. And they, they push on each other. Okay, then you have a second triangle, the ethics triangle. So the, the theology triangle is what is true. The ethics triangle is all about what is good and right. And once again, you have kind of three areas, and you have the, and, and I have trouble, guys, first of all, I spent this entire week just trying to keep my head above water looking at some of these terms, because I haven't, I haven't really spent a lot of time studying them, and I didn't, I, I didn't have a seminary course that I took, and so, so I'm going to try to pronounce these rightly, but um, deontological principle, that's one side of this ethics triangle, and that deals with duties and rules. And then there's the teleological principle, and that has to do with the end and the results. And then there's the existential principle, and that has more to do with the heart and motivations, etc. But all of these play a part and a role in ethics. And so let me just define ethics really quick, because that's, that's where this study is going now. Now we're going to talk about these three legs of the triangle. And we're just going to talk about one leg today. But, but let me just define ethics altogether. This is just a simple definition. It's the discipline of dealing with what is good and bad and with moral duty and obligation. So all Christians and most atheists agree that there is a way that we should live, right? And so we, we all have a, a, a kind of an ingrained sense that there's a pattern of behavior that is acceptable. And there are certain behaviors that are not acceptable. acceptable. And so how do we get there? Um, biblically speaking, it's, it's clear. I'll just read two quick verses. John 5 says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So no question that how we live really, really matters. John 5 says this, 
Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And again, as we look at these verses, we have to think of the theology triangle because exegetically, we might just say, oh wow, we're saved by works. And you know, if we have good works, we're saved. If we have bad works, we're not. But when you, when you take it all and you take all of Scripture, you, you understand that there's, there's, there's more to it. We are saved by faith, not by works. But, but works have a significant place. And, um, and ultimately, as Christians, we understand that we believe and then our behavior follows. And so, but behavior is critical, and it's critical for Christians. It's critical for non-Christians. So it's not just Christians who study and, and believe in ethics. Non-Christians do too. And, um, and, but for non-Christians or for atheists, they don't have an ultimate standard. Or, or at least their ultimate standard is not God. Because if you take God out of the question, out of the equation, if you're an atheist and you take God out of the equation, then you have to come up with another reason for ethics because it can't be God. So it's, it's got to be something else. And, um, and so that's really what we're looking at now. But, but why study why, at, why atheists, the foundation for atheistic ethics? Okay, so why even look at this subject? Why do we care about the, the, the way atheists come up with their system of ethics. Do you understand my question? And, and what do you think? Yeah. So I remember when I was a kid, I was watching Doogie Howser one time, and he was talking about this kind of thing. He said, you couldn't figure out whether you wanted to believe in God or not. And he was writing his little thing at the end of the, the day, and he said, so if I, if I behave in a way that's good, Well, and, and that's, that's what we're looking at. So if you don't believe in God, why should you care? And, and we're going we're gonna to look at different areas for that. Um, but but let, me, let me highlight three reasons. We study ethics, and, and specifically a non-Christian's approach to ethics, to understand non-believers for the sake of evangelism. That's, that's one reason. Um, to guard against the prevailing winds because we are affected more than we think by, by non-Christian ethics. It, it impacts us. It's, it's part of the thinking that is in our culture. And so, and, and I'll say more about that, but to also to appreciate our God-given, Christ-centered, biblical system of ethics. So when you understand why a non-believer does what they do, it really causes you to appreciate 
what we have as Christians. We have a rock-solid reason to believe and act the way we do. God gives us that. And so we, we, be, we believe because we have God as our background. And so um, we'll come back to that. So we're going to look at the, the second triangle, the ethics triangle. Again, deontological, which has to do with duties, laws, and principles. Teleological, which has to do with the subjective, um, the, the end results or the consequences and goals. And existential, which is very subjective and has to do with the individual without outside influence. And so existential, that's what we're looking at. What is existential ethics from an atheistic standpoint? It, it rejects objectivity and the universality of, of moral ethics. So there's, there, are, there are no moral norms. So there's no God telling us how we should live. And, but but that, how, what, do you, what do you do with that? There is no intrinsic meaning to our existence. We have to create it. And, and if there is no God, then, there is, then, then moral standards are completely relative. If there is no God, then what, how we live is relative. It's subjective. It's not objective. There isn't one way. And so, so let's, let's look at that. The idea of existential ethics, which rejects the objectivity and universality of moral norms. There were the sophists, and I'm not going to spend any time talking about them other than this was 500 BC, and they, they were traveling educators, and, and they said, hey, if there's no God, then man himself is the measure of all things, and, and that's what they taught. But then you fast forward to the 19th century, and you've got Karl Marx, and that was from 1818 to 1883. And he, again, this is all before we even have the title ex existentialism. So, but, but he is imbibing these, these thoughts. So he started with the presupposition that there is no God. Moral standards are relative to one's social class and are ultimately grounded in self-interest. And, and so he believed that ethical systems, specifically Christianity, was a tool. And it was a, a tool used by Christians. It was a political movement aimed at promoting the interests of one class over another. And, and so that was the point of Christian ethics. And, and this, this divide was between the working class and the owner class, the owners. And, and ethics are ultimately negotiable. So Marx believed that Christianity was a religious ethic that a particular class used to suppress another. And, and so that was his understanding of ethics. And so he believed that the owners, the haves, were wrong, and the have-nots, the workers, were right. And so his view of ethics had everything to do with doing whatever you could to overthrow the owners. So it had everything to do with revolution and um, starting a revolution. Whatever the workers do to promote a revolution is good. And whatever hinders a revolution is evil. So that was his ethic. Whatever promotes this revolution to overthrow owners is good. Whatever hinders 
that is evil. And, and it was, it's ironic that most people become Marxists for ethical reasons. So in Karl Marx, people found a thinker who seemed to care. He seemed to care about the have-nots. And, and then he had a method, a way to handle it, a, something to do, some way to, some plan to help these people. Well, the people who em embraced what Marx said, and we're going to move on. We're, just, we're not going to spend hardly any more time with Marx. But the people who embraced that were people like Mao, Lenin, Stalin, Pol Pot. And it's estimated that in the 20th century, over 100 million people died as a result of his ethic. And his ethic was to crush the haves so that the workers could rise up. And, and again, murder, any kind, anything is permissible so long as it promotes this revolution. And um, it's, it's evil. I mean, what happened, the results of this? But this is existential thought, even though the name hasn't, hasn't come around yet. So then there was Frederick Nietzsche, and he came around about 26 years he was born 26 years after Marx. And he, he has been hugely influential in this 20th century, but even on into today. So like Marx, again, these guys, they don't believe that there is a God, but there are ethics, and so you have to find those ethics. They're subjective, and you have to find them in and of yourselves. So Nietzsche... Like Marx, he rejected God and the existence of ultimate truth. Like Marx, he believed that there is no disinterested search for truth. And like Marx, he rejected traditional morality, God, and saw it as a vehicle by which some people oppress others. Okay, the similarities, they're, they're, they're very, very similar. However, unlike Marx, Marx believed Christianity was a religion of the rich to suppress the poor, whereas Nietzsche believed Christianity was a religion of the poor to suppress the rich. And so he, he, believed, so he believed it was a slave religion bent on frustrating the ambitions of superior people. So night and day. What Nietzsche was saying is we should have the power to do whatever we want and no one should be able to stop us. And so if you're rich and powerful and you've got the gifts, do whatever you want. And, um, and so same philosophy, opposite directions. In, any, any thoughts or comments at this point? Not be listened to. 
and people who are minorities should be listened to. Which is interesting, though, because that, so Marx is all about that, but Nietzsche would say, no, it's, it's fine for the white, wealthy, rich people to suppress the poor. Right? They've got the power, that's fine. So same ethical principle, but completely different results. And um, do you just see the confusion, incredible confusion? If you don't have any kind of anchor, and if you are looking inward subjectively for your standard of morality, that could lead you anywhere, really. And, um, and so here's just two guys. Now, let's, let's keep going. So once again both in favor of abolishing Christianity, one in support of class warfare, the other in support of the Superman. So now let's move to the 20, later on to, the, to the, actually the 20th century. And Jean-Paul Sartre, he's considered the father of existentialism. Now there were, Kierkegaard is considered the grandfather who was actually a Christian himself, but Sartre is the one who, who first popularized it, but also that the name existentialism came at the time of Sartre. And so he was born in Paris, and like Marx and Nietzsche, Sartre was profoundly atheistic. And so he believed, his big thing was that existence precedes essence. So it took me a while this week to even understand what he was saying, but existence precedes essence. And so here's an example. You have a penknife, and someone designs a penknife. And in that case, it's the opposite. Essence precedes existence. You have a function for a penknife, and then you produce a penknife that has, that has its functionality based on the essence. So what it can possibly do has guardrails, and it's based on how it was created. And um, another example would be a chair. You know, a chair could be metal, it could be wood, it could have cushions, it could, you know, there's, it could be different colors, but it, it has one general function for people to sit on it. Well, that function was decided before it was produced and created. And once it was created, it is created to function in a certain way. And, and there are limitations to how it functions. Well, Sartre... And in fact, this is really true of everything that we produce as human beings, right? I mean, everything that we do, the essence precedes existence. But he says this is different with humans. We are an exception to this. In our case, existence precedes essence. In other words, you are Born, you're kind of thrown into this mean, absolutely meaningless existence with no direction whatsoever. And then you decide, you make yourself, you create what humanity is all about. And, and everybody does that differently. So again, we're thrown into an objectively meaningless world. So we're alive first without meaning and then we have to make choices. Now, if God created us, our choices in life are limited by God's design. That's the essence precedes existence. He came along and said, no, existence precedes essence. In other words, God didn't create us. We, 
I don't know about that, but we're thrown into existence and now we create our, our essence. And so really what he's, what he's doing is he's putting us, each of us, in the place of God. We become like God. If there is no God, then our choices are limitless because we're not hindered by someone outside ourselves saying, this is how you must, you must live. So we create that ourselves. And, and, and this is what he said, human beings live in anguish, not because life is terrible, but because we are condemned to be free. So his comment was that that, in a sense, is a condemnation. It's, it's, a, it's a terror. Um, because if, if that's true, then as you live your life, instead of a fork, I mean, imagine an indecisive person. A fork in the road is hard for an indecisive person. You've got to decide what to do. And you've got two choices. How about if you had limit, limitless choices? You can do whatever you want. And by the way, your essence is dependent on what you choose. You're making your essence. It's, it's a terrifying, they, they call it, I, I forget some of the terms, but this, this abyss, this, um, th they call it the absurd, that we have that kind of power to choose, and all the choices we make are in a world without fixed values. I am what I do. I create myself through what I do. And so his thought was, you should not at all be influenced by outside, any outside influences. So God should have no part of this equation. Your parents should not have any part in this equation. Your teachers should not. Your churches. You need, you are radically free. And that's how you must live to be an authentic human being. Um, do, do you see some of this in today's, I mean, I, I remember going to public school as a kid and I was taught, even at my age, all the more they're teaching it now, that you can be whoever you want to be. And, you know, don't let anybody hinder your choices. The only thing that's evil, in a sense, is something that would hinder our choices. And, and this is a radically atheistic viewpoint, and it's under the heading of existentialism. Yeah, Lisa. Yeah. Live your best life. And, and he said, I mean, just imagine, our freedom is completely without direction or guidance. You must look within yourself. To, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and we see that, but he didn't. He felt like he was giving people incredible freedom. And so, and, and so he, he says we are fashioning ourselves 
And therefore, we have to act as though everyone is watching because you're creating what humanity is. And it, because it's from within you, it's never really been seen before. So you are the author of your life, your own version of reality, and people are watching. Yeah. I hope I can answer it. It's not fair. Well, back to Nietzsche and Marx, from a Mar this is more Marxist, whereas Nietzsche would say, no, give them the tools. They can do whatever they want. And, and I mean, he actually, even school itself is, is, a, is a departure in a sense because you're being taught from outside. But, um, but Marx would say, no, we've got to help the working class, if you will. Any, any, any thoughts? Yeah. That's my question is what's the point? Like are they trying to be to, to be enlightened or are they trying to be right? Like what's the what's trying the to be free. It's all about self autonomy. It's a desire to throw off all shackles and be completely free. But we can't be free. We're affected by our circumstances, by the gifts that we've been born with, by the parents, by the location, etc. But it's a desire to throw off Anything. Okay, and then we'll have to move on. So two. Yeah, Joe. Yeah. You are the measure. You're not. 
Yeah, yeah, good, sir. Okay, and so we're gonna we're gonna get on to that as well, and that's good. That's good insight. So, so I mean, there's there's push here. I mean, this is this is difficult. There is such. I mean, this isn't just atheistic. This is anti-God. At the at the root of this is a desire to deny God and have nothing to do with Him. But so Sartre looked at a waiter, and this was kind of one of his case studies. And and he just said, look at that waiter. He's working mechanically. Just a waiter, no choices, he needs money, is forced into this life of being a waiter. And, and Sartre was looking at him and just saying, man, don't you know that the world is open to you? You could be an artist or an astronaut. You could do anything. Why are you settling for this meaningless existence? In his words. And, and his point being that you're settling on it because you think you have to. You're affected by the opinions of others, the societal structures, the need for money. He hated capitalism. You're, you're forced, you have to eat, you have to pay rent. And, um, and, and he wanted to throw all of that off. And, and man, this waiter, you're just going through the motions. You, you lose your chance to be who you want to be. All the things we aren't but could become, suppressing this or the, the idea of going through the motions is what he called bad faith. And so the worst thing you could do is just go through the motions. That's bad faith. And, and that means if you're taking your cues from the Bible, bad faith. If you're taking your cues from your parents, bad faith. From your schools, bad faith. Bad faith is to do what you think you're supposed to do without it just being your authentic self. And um, so, so what would he think would be, well, let, let me just say, bad faith, the definition of it in his mind was being governed by the choices of others. Forced ourselves to believe something because it's easy. We don't have other options. I don't control my destiny. It, it really ultimately lets me off the hook. So I'm being weak. I'm just you know, letting other people make the decisions. And, um, and, and he said, that's the greatest evil. We, it gets in the way of our free expression of self. You can be and should be whoever you want to be, and you mustn't let anyone else influence you. The essence of his teacher was, or of his teaching was to remind us just how radically free we really are and ought to be. And um, so he, he looked at the dating relationship as the epitome of this. In a dating relationship, we are making decisions, daily, moment-by-moment moment decisions, because nothing's fixed, and yet we gladly move through uncharted waters with excitement. Dating sets aside normal complacency, reveals the sublime, terrifying, thrilling uncertainty of existence. We should not be too bored. So do you see what he's, what he's saying? Is here I am, I'm married, I have five kids. And this gets back to what you were saying, Sarah. So if I want to be authentic, then there should, I shouldn't be living my life from a sense of duty. 
I shouldn't be living my life because the Bible tells me to live a certain way. And frankly, if I feel like dating or if I have an impulse to try to have sex with the neighbor's wife, then I should be true to myself. But then you run into, well, what about other people? Because if I were to take that freedom on, what about Anne? What about my children? What about this other person's husband? What about their children? It, 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 it gets really complicated. And so here's how he dealt with that. And this is, this is horrible. This is, this is satanic. He said, ultimately, hell is other people. Do, do you see what he's getting at? What hell is other people. It's other people because we are necessarily limited by other people. You can't get around that. He's, he's tried to philosophize his way around God. Okay, let's, let's figure this out. But you can't get around the fact that we are individual human beings. And when I express my freedom, it necessarily affects other people. And so other people limit my limitless freedom. I could do whatever I want. I could go wherever I want if it weren't for those other people, those damned other people. So, so and I, I may be understanding this wrong, but his, his conclusion was hell is other people. Any, any thoughts? Yeah. No. Well, no, he's just hell on earth. Because after, after you die, you just, you're, you, you fall into nothingness. Absolutely no afterlife. The only hope is that your memory will live on because you were authentically yourself. But anyways, yeah, Matt. I'm, I'm trying to wrap my brain all around. Oh, me too, yeah. So there's a grain of importance here, right? And we'll get to that. Anyways, keep keep going. So it seems like he takes this this thing that's true in the world, like uh, yeah, um, make the choices that you think yeah, make choices that you're supposed to make, and he blows that up and says that's all there is in the world, and he dumps all the rest of it. Exactly. Because a lot of what you read that he wrote, actually, it probably read what resonates with me, and it probably resonates with a lot of us, right? Of, um, Yeah, so personal responsibility is important. And he stresses personal responsibility. He really does. Angel of light. 
Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so there is some good here that we can get. But, um, but the fact that he ultimately wants us to be like God. He wants us to step in the place of God. And, and we, can't, we can't do that. Yeah. Well, and, and why is it okay? Because she's God. It's, it's right back to the garden. It's, you can be like God, knowing good and evil. And yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's where, that's where this breaks down. Yeah. Put the interests of others before your own. That, that's the, the opposite of, yeah. And in the attempt to have an authentic experience, it actually denies our experience. Because then if we're just molecules with no purpose and we can make our choices and it doesn't matter, then what are my emotions? And what is my grief? It's meaningless. Yeah. It's... Yeah. It's, it is profoundly isolating. Profoundly. Because not only do you isolate yourself from God, but you isolate yourself from outside influences as well. Because you are. But, but there, we got to keep moving. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And um, maybe we'll get, Brett, you have, you have just a, a 30 seconds on how it connects with cancel culture. Okay, now we've, we've got to really move on, because back to the, the beginning, the idea that this helps us to understand non-believers. It helps us to understand the meaninglessness of their existence. That's a place of despair. That's why we have suicide. Um, you know, and so understand the plight. There is a, you know, the endless choices you must make without any support whatsoever. That's profoundly alienating. You can be whoever you want to be. Just think of the anxiety that comes from that. Life is utterly meaningless, and yet I have to decide on a meaning. And um, there's incredible, but, but God gives us a clear path, rules, a glorious end, results, eternal life, and a perfect motive, obedience from the heart. God gives us everything we need. Um, 
anxiety, God says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I mean, he gives us, not only does he give us rest, but he gives us a glorious purpose, um, a, an incredible purpose. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. What we have as Christians is amazing. Um, but this whole idea of radical freedom, it's important. And what Matt was bringing up is this freedom, on, on the one hand, or, or let's just put it this way, sometimes as Christians, especially Christians growing up in a Christian home, you can kind of grow up taking this outside influence and just going with it like a robot. Well, guess what happens? You don't have real faith because real faith, you must make a decision. You must choose to follow Christ. And I'm not, I'm not denying the sovereignty of God here, but it is a, it is a personal um, commitment to a truth that if you just let it be your parents' faith, you'll never experience it. And so, so we do need to have that sense of independence, if you will. It's a different independence than what Sartre is talking about. But, but you do need to not, not follow the herd, but follow Christ. Right? I mean, don't blindly go along with the crowd. We must make a decision. You can walk the talk, but we need to practice what we preach. And so all of this um, is, so, so in talking with a non-believer, understand the dilemma that they are dealing with and, and help them to see it and help them to see the hope and the, in, in what we have in Christ in the gospel. And then to guard against the prevailing winds because make no mistake, this philosophy is all around us. We see it everywhere we look, and it has a tendency to influence us. And that's, you know, again, just you know, blindly going along with the crowd. We, we come to church. Well, how many people in church on a given Sunday are there but don't really know King Jesus? But they're just there because they're husband or wife, or they're just there because they're parents, you know, so on and so forth. We... Um, yeah, there's more that can be said. Appreciate our God-given, Christ-centered, Bible-based purpose and ethics. Jeremiah 29, I know this is quoted, probably overquoted, but for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. It seems like so many people are so eager to throw off the shackles of this God who loves us and wants to give us rest and wants to give us purpose and want we are not big enough to live for ourselves. That will crush you every time. We need a bigger object to live for. And, and that's what Christianity gives us. Any last comments? Otherwise, we'll close. And Can I just ask a question? Yeah. So then do you think it's if you go into the deep end and, and try to, to learn more about this stuff, that it is, it's not good, that you should stay away from it, or else you might get tempted to, to follow that philosophy? Or to learn about it and arm yourself with the, tr with the truth and 
And that way you can combat it in the world. Yeah. Well, th that's how, what it, how it functioned for me this week because I, I knew very little about this. Um, and I studied it this week, and I think it was a fruitful study for me. And there's so much more to study. Um, but it was, it was definitely fruitful for me because it helped sharpen what I do believe. And, and believe me, God is not at the risk of being overtaken by some misguided philosophy. The Bible, the truth stands firmly on its own. And I've spent a lot of time studying this, but, but looking out, it, it was a helpful study for me. And it just solidified what I believe and made me more thankful to be a Christian. So, well, let's, let's stop here. Father, thank you so much for... Lord, it just seems like there are intelligent people out there trying to come up with some way to deny the existence of a personal God who owns us. But Lord, we embrace it. We are so thankful for a God who loves us and loves us so much he sent his son to show us how to live and then to die for the fact that we haven't lived that way. But Lord, thank you for our Savior. And Lord, we want to live every day for him. And so help us to choose to live in a way that honors him, regardless of what's going on around us. But Lord, we want to be influenced by the right influences and protected from the wrong influences. And so bless us, we pray in Jesus. And bless our children and our college student children. Bless the college students among us. Bless the people among us that are so easily swayed by the wind of doctrine out there. Lord, anchor us in Christ and him alone, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.